This is Dr. Rob Harder with the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast, making your world better. What does it take to be an effective nonprofit leader today? What are the biggest challenges? What are the biggest obstacles? How should nonprofits fundraise in an economy that is constantly changing? All of these reasons combined led me to start this show. And it's my hope that through this series, people can learn not only what it takes to be an effective nonprofit organization, but to hear from effective leaders who are successfully making a positive impact in their communities. We hope you enjoy the show as together we hear how they are making their world better. Passion and dedication. This is the fuel that nonprofits run on. And when you find an individual, any individual, whether that be a paid staff person or volunteer, who is passionately dedicated to your organization's mission, they can become a raving fan, as Ken Blanchard put it once. So how can you develop and cultivate raving fans for your nonprofit? Well, Jeffrey Heller is my guest today, and he is that raving fan who has dedicated thousands of hours to raising awareness around the plight of refugees and asylum seekers in our country, and along the way has introduced thousands of people to Human Rights First, which is a nonprofit organization committed to serving as a champion for human rights of all individuals. The mission and work of the Human Rights First organization so captivated Jeffrey that he now dedicates his life to riding his bike around the country in order to promote their work. Enjoy today's show. Well, Jeffrey, it is really good to have you on the show. I understand that you have a lot of passion for human rights, especially for the marginalized in our country. In fact, for my listeners, now I wanted to highlight that you were so inspired by the situation of asylum-seeking individuals that you decided to ride across the country in order to raise funds and create greater awareness for Human Rights First, a nonprofit organization that is focused on championing human rights. And I also heard that despite having a few near-death experiences, which we need to hear about, uh, you still rode your bike through 39 of the lower 48 states in order to speak to people about the plight of refugees. Okay, this is a fascinating story. Tell us more. What drew you into it? And tell us a bit about those near-death experiences. Well, I went to law school thinking I would save the world. I think many people do. And when I got out of law school, got married, my wife and I spent a year abroad doing volunteer social work. We got more out of it than we gave to the, our victims, shall I say. We came back and uh, she went to business school and I got uh, a job with a large New York City law firm doing a variety of commercial law and money makes the world go round. It's great stuff, but my heart wasn't in it. And then some of the firm's senior people said, you know, you young people could, could stand to get some courtroom experience. How about taking a case for a Haitian boat person? This was back in 1983. And then the little voice said, oh, that's why you went to law school in the first place, to help people like that. And I've been very disturbed uh, after the South Vietnam fell, for example, when there were lots of refugees coming and the U.S. took a lot of them. But I thought we should have taken even more because people without a country are really the most helpless people. So I took the case. It was in front of a mean judge. The case went on for a year and a half and I won. And it was the second of 500 Haitian boat person cases to be won in New York City, where the person was given asylum, which meant that he was put in line for a green card and could stay safely in the United States. He had to prove that he had a well-founded fear of persecution. People don't just get handed asylum or refugee status. They have to prove their case. But of course, to prove your case, you have to be heard. 
And if you're in a place where you don't speak the language and don't know the system, well, imagine if I were in a Chinese court or a Haitian court and everything was strange, the procedures, the language, I would need an advocate. And I was an advocate for this guy. Once having done a case like that, remembering what I had intended to do when I became a lawyer, the bug bit me. And it's down the slippery slope. After four years doing commercial law, I stuck with it another couple of years. I, I stopped and I began to take cases myself. And the case was referred to me, the first Haitian case, and how little the world has changed, hasn't it, that the Haitians are once again in the news, not being treated well. The organization that sent me the case was the Lawyers Committee for Human Rights, which later was renamed Human Rights First. I took many cases for them over the years. I, for 25 years, lectured lawyers on how to do political asylum and refugee cases. I taught at Brooklyn Law School and Seton Hall Law School, taught students how to do those things in clinical programs. And I did the cases really one by one by one. Working with Human Rights First let me feel that my efforts were being leveraged because they find volunteer lawyers to do what I was doing. And they also advocate for changes in the law in the U.S., for us following our own laws, which we often don't do, and for changes abroad, because people don't want to flee their countries. They would rather stay there, but sometimes they can't. And I'd also long been a cyclist and liked the idea of being self-sufficient out there in the open. When I had a kid, it was my middle daughter graduating from Grinnell College in Iowa, I thought, this was back in 2011, I don't want to fly out there from New York City. Let me bike out there. And then I thought how self-indulgent that would be just to go on a bike trip. Why don't I do it for a purpose? So I called up the folks at Human Rights First and I said, how would you like some free money? How would you like me to spread the word out in the provinces, in the heartland, where people are good people, educated, they mean well, but they don't know about the things we know about. Let me go talk to them. And they said, sure, why not? And I did it. It was so hypnotic being out there. If you've ever been on a long bike trip, life becomes simple. I love talking to the people. It was the best kind of interactions because they're shallow and nice. There's no baggage. And I love being an ambassador for human rights first. In fact, they eventually gave me a card that said that I'm their ambassador. I felt like I was an ambassador for refugees and asylees an ambassador for the human rights organization, also for cyclists. I don't wear spandex. I wear a shirt with buttons and a collar always. I'm an ambassador for New York City because I grew up far from here in New York State, but along the Canadian border in a very rural area. So I don't sound like I'm from here. And sometimes people say I don't act like I'm from here. Okay, so tell me about this. I love the, your passion. I love how you were inspired initially. So along the way, when you're riding your bike, it sounds like you ran into some real tough situations, near-death experiences. Maybe talked about one or two of them. Well, I, the worst experience I was in was actually in Brooklyn, New York, working for a guardianship agency, which I have done for some years. And while bicycling to check on someone in a nursing home, I was hit by a criminally negligent driver. And my left leg was broken into five pieces. It took two surgeries to repair it. But seven months to the day after the crash, I was back on the bike to ride a loop through all the New England states. After going to Iowa, I decided I wanted to visit all of the lower 48. 
So I kept going with that. Other instances uh, were more frightening. For example, crossing a bridge into Philadelphia. When I was on my way to Nashville, Tennessee from New York in 2012, there was uh, construction. So the, the bridge was narrowed down to one lane with what's called a Jersey barrier, a concrete barrier on one side of the lane. And I was trying to bike over this bridge. I was allowed to, but it was a steep uphill and I was going slower and slower and cars were piling up behind me and nobody honked, but I thought this is terrible. So I stopped, waved to the people behind me, picked up the bike in my gear, put it over the concrete barrier, flung myself over and the drivers were happy and they sped along. And then I saw what was on the other side of the barrier, holes to which I could see the river down below. It was really under construction. And I had to pick my way through the construction, avoiding the holes. And when I got to where there was a downhill, I had to wait for a hole in traffic because cars were whizzing. You know, people don't observe the speed limit. And if they had, it still would have been too fast for me. And I had a small window during which I could get on the road and go down the, uh, the other side of the bridge and hope that there were no holes or big bumps or dead animals or broken glass or other things to stop me. I made it. Another time uh, I was in Missouri on an interstate. There are places out west, to my surprise, you probably know this already, where there's no other road but the interstate. So cyclists are allowed to bike on the shoulder. And I suddenly heard the screech of tires and it terrified me. And I don't know whether it was someone who said, oh, let's have a little fun with this bicyclist. And they hit the brakes just so I could hear the screech of the tires or if the person was falling asleep or whatever and got onto the shoulder and woke up just in time and hit the brakes. Whatever it was, I got good and scared. Now, let me go back to why you chose the Human Rights First organization. And obviously, you mentioned that you took on some cases, and so it was a great synergy between what you were doing as an attorney and then what they were trying to fight for with their organization. But did it ever cross your mind that if you really were to expand this effort to really fight for the rights of those who don't have a voice, those who are you know new to this country or immigrants, asylum-seeking individuals. Did you ever think of going to your law firm, say, or to a government agency? Like, What drew you specifically to human rights first as a nonprofit organization? Was there anything unique about going to a nonprofit specifically that drew you to them? Or was it just the fact they were doing such great work? Well, I, there are advantages to dealing with a nonprofit. As far as what is the government's concern, we have laws that are mostly good. The government does not observe those laws. For example, you have people saying all the time, oh, the folks at the southern border are gate crashers. They're breaking the law. In fact, the law says that anyone has the right to come to the border or if they cross the border, even without authorization, even an illegal crosser has the right to ask for asylum, the right, not the privilege. And they have the right to be heard. They have to prove the case. The burden of proof is on them, but they have the right to ask and be heard. And our government does not afford them that right. And in the last few years, the government has also pressured immigration judges to be productive, to produce so many decisions in a year. And they don't care what kind of decisions they are. They just want them, they want people railroaded because they really do care what kind of decisions they are. They want people ordered to be removed from the country. So the government, with there are exceptions. There are judges who are very kind and nice. There are people who observe the law. I have encountered many government prosecutors in the immigration system who are liars and who are cruel. 
And so they're the enemy very often, unfortunately. And I say that as a person who loves and respects the law and loves and respects my country, the United States. So they're out. You can't rely on them. We have to make them do the right thing. Corporations and big law firms are organizations that on their own can't do that much either. They need someone to coordinate their efforts with others. And that's where Human Rights First comes in. They have on their board and have had for many years people with connections to major law firms and to other institutions in the United States, people in the entertainment industry, uh, people in big business. And they are able to marshal human rights first resources and connections to get everybody on the same page so they can hand out cases according to what firm might be the best one to handle it. They can uh, use the talents of big law firms that have a lot of litigation experience, Supreme Court experience, to go into the the high courts, the appellate courts, to try to see that justice is done. So if I went to those firms, even if I convinced one of them to listen to me, it wouldn't be the same. It's the leveraging and the, the synergy that you get from an organization like Human Rights First, putting everybody together. I also admire their philosophy. There are countries that get picked on in this world. I will mention one that's very prominent in the news always, and that's Israel. Israel has, it lives in a tough neighborhood. What neighborhood isn't a tough neighborhood? They have a lot of existential problems. They're on the edge all the time of being annihilated, as powerful as they have become. They also do things they shouldn't do. They also abuse human rights, as does our own beloved country abuse human rights. And human rights first criticizes the United States, and they criticize the Israelis, and they criticize the Egyptians, and the Chinese, and the Pakistanis, and the Indians, and the Australians, and everybody, because they are interested in human rights and not respecting countries in particular. And there are other organizations that don't do that, that may pick on Israel in particular, or may take a a side for or against countries um, in the Arab world or in South Asia or wherever. And Human Rights First doesn't do that. I respect their willingness to stick up for people no matter where they are and to call people on the carpet when they don't do the right thing, whoever they are. Impressive. No, I appreciate you explaining that. And I like how you distinguish what a nonprofit brings and particularly the leveraging power with all the connections, whether it be board members, as you mentioned, or just their reputation to connect with a broader base than just one law firm or certainly a government agency, particularly if you keep running into unethical behavior. Okay. Now, as you've gone about advocating for those who need services and support, especially immigrants and new Americans, what have been your biggest barriers along the way? I think there's a lack of knowledge out there, and there's a lot of propaganda, and a lot of lies are told. I had someone in Tennessee come up to me once and say, I heard that there's a county in Kansas being run according to Sharia law. And I said, well, I I don't think that's the case. I said, that would be unconstitutional, and I think there would be a lot of lawyers and judges and other people up in arms about that if it were true. Who knows where that information came from? Uh, If people tell me that foreigners bring disease or that they're criminals or that they are looking for handouts, and I point out to them very gently that if you look at the numbers, that immigrants, including unauthorized immigrants, what some people call illegal immigrants, but that's not nice. And we should speak nicely about people. They're not illegal people. They're people who may have broken a rule or a law, 
But I point out that even unauthorized immigrants have a lower crime rate, a lower disease rate, and a higher labor force participation rate than people born in America. There are people who just don't realize the quality of a person who's able to leave their home, undertake a dangerous trip. Very often they were pushed out for their personal characteristics. Uh, there are women, for example, who are abused and go to the police and the police say, go home and be a better wife. And this doesn't save their lives. There are also people who are persecuted because of their activities. I had a client from Bangladesh whose legs were broken because he started a, he was a lawyer and he started an organization to advocate for women's rights. I had a client from the Congo whose brother was killed because when the then dictator was in a motorcade with the Pope who came to visit the country, the Pope came first and everyone cheered along the route. And then when the dictator came by, this woman's brother, who was a student, had gotten everyone he knew to organize that they would turn their backs on the dictator. And because she was his relative, she had no hope and no future there either. So people are driven out of the countries they love, that they have taken a risk to try to improve. And they have to have the smarts and the luck and uh, whatever else it takes to be able to gumption to be able to get here. And they're just, they're just good people. But they're, even if they weren't such good people, they're humans. And as I'm wearing a button now, you couldn't see it probably there, but I'll tell you what the button says. It has a quote from January 6th. But it's January 6th, 1941, from Franklin D. Roosevelt's speech to Congress, his uh, State of the Union address. He said, freedom means the supremacy of human rights everywhere. That is freedom. And if we're a free country, we have to respect people's human rights, wherever they're from. We'll be right back. Hey, friends, thanks so much for listening to the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast. If this is your first time listening to us, I want to make sure you're aware of a whole group of other episodes with fascinating guests that I previously interviewed. Just go to our website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. There you'll find numerous interviews of nonprofit leaders from all over the country and even from different countries, all trying to make their world better. I also want to encourage you to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with others. This will help us get this great content out to more nonprofit leaders just like you. Now, finally, if you want to get my monthly email update that contains more resources in addition to these episodes, it's really easy. Just go to my website at nonprofitleadershippodcast.org and simply type your email address in the top right-hand box, and you'll be added to our monthly email update. And this way, you'll never miss any of the interviews or extra content from this show. And if you have any questions or comments, do not hesitate to email me. Thanks again for listening. Now back to the show. Well, you have definitely committed yourself to this cause of being a voice for those who feel like they have no voice to advocate for those who are on the margins that have left their country. You know, for my listeners who are hearing this podcast, what's the main message you would like my listeners to hear when it comes to the work you're doing? Well, I, I want them to remember that our laws provide for people to have the right to ask for refuge and to prove their case. I want them to remember the Declaration of Independence. And if we adhere to religions, what our religions tell us about how to treat other people. 
and just to keep an open mind about it. Now, the, even even I know some people who are pretty uncomfortable with with immigration, but I know these people, and I know that if there was somebody who was on their doorstep who said, "I need shelter from the blizzard," or "I'm hungry," or "I, I need a shirt," they would take care of them. They would help them. They're good people. I want uh, people to remember that we all live as individuals, even in a society, and we die alone, ultimately, and we suffer as individuals, one at a time. We all feel it, and it's all personal to us, and we have to remember that about these groups when we hear about, say, the caravans that we used to hear about in the last few years approaching the border in the South. They're not caravans. They're groups of people who are taking a risk by coming. And something drove them. I'm a great admirer of Abe Lincoln. And he said, when there were people said, oh, if you free the slaves, they're all going to come north. And he said, people seldom run unless there's something to run from. And I've had clients from, think of poor countries like Ethiopia, one of the poorest countries in the world. And I, I had a client who was an American citizen. And he said, I miss it. He had gotten asylum. He couldn't live there, but he said, I didn't have enough to eat there. But every weekend I'd get together with my cousins. We'd go out to grandpa's farm. We'd all help him a little bit. We'd share what we had. He said, I had a life. Here he said, I get up in the morning. I drive my black limousine car 12 hours in the city. I go home to my condo that I own and I go to bed. And I get up and I do that six days a week. He said, I'd give anything to live in Ethiopia, but they'd kill me. I can't. The first ride that I took was to Iowa, Postville, Iowa, which had three years earlier in 2008 been the scene of a giant immigration raid that arrested about a quarter of the population of the town. People were working at a meatpacking plant in town, and someone decided to make an example out of it. The government later regretted it. It was a real disaster. But I biked, there, I biked there three years later and was shown around by a pastor who had made a lot of connections with local people. And he introduced me to some people from Guatemala. And one of them told me this story. He said, I lived in a beautiful village on a mountainside in Guatemala. And we were poor, but we had work and we had our families. And he said, what we did was we worked in an apple orchard that was owned by the big landowner. He would come on his helicopter once or twice a year to see the trees. One year he came on his helicopter and he said, these trees are getting old. I want them all cut down and we'll plant new trees. Well, this guy said that was the end of the village because there wouldn't be trees to tend for 10 years or however long it took for those apple trees to get big enough to have a harvest. He'd only need a couple of workers once the trees were cut down to look after the the orchard. And he said, this man said, we had no other land. We had no land that we owned. We couldn't go to some other village. There was no place with work for us. And our children were going to starve. There's no social safety net. So he heard about work that was available at a meat packing plant in some cold place up north called Iowa. And he went. And he got the work and he worked really hard. It's very hard and dangerous work to work in a meatpacking plant. And a lot of uh, employers have told me that they couldn't find Americans who were willing to do it, but they could get these folks from Guatemala. And he said, I didn't like the weather. 
It's not my culture. It's not my language. But he said, in Guatemala, I gave my kids coffee with sugar in it because they had nothing else to drink and it would keep their stomachs quiet. He said, in Iowa, I gave them milk. I gave them fruit juice. You hear that and you just think, why shouldn't he be able to come and feed his family? He's a human being too. He has rights too. He's God's child too. I understand through this this year, because of the pandemic, of course, you're going to be completing the 11th annual ride for human rights for just staying within the greater New York City area. But you're going to be stopping at monuments that are significant to the immigrant experience. And I understand you're hoping to bring awareness, of course, to how much immigrants, especially refugees, have contributed to America. Tell us more about this 11th annual ride here coming up. Well, I think it's it's uh, fitting to do it in New York City, not just because I live here and it's convenient and I don't have to stay in motels with questionable virus status, but because New York is really what all of America should be. Now, yes, it's crowded and yes, it's expensive and yes, it's noisy. And yes, I, I'm sick of people driving around without mufflers and riding motorcycles in my bike lanes. And I don't know, it has its, every place has its pluses and minuses, but everyone here is a minority. When it's the Chinese New Year, you may not know which one it is, but you know what's going on. When it's the Jewish New Year, you know that uh, roads will be a little bit emptier that day and people will be eating honey cake. And when it's a saint's day, they, they suspend the parking regulations so you don't have to move your car. Everybody's a minority. I think that's why everybody gets along and everybody respects. I mean, not every individual. But communities respect each other. We all enjoy each other's foods. And a lot of that is done in play, uh, on a history that's probably as bloody as that of anywhere else. There were slaves here. Uh, New York City was a slave center because it's where people made money off cotton. There was a time when the south of the U.S. produced three quarters of the world's cotton. And it was a very valuable thing. And it was produced with slaves. So there were pro-slavery people in New York City because maybe they didn't like slavery, but they wanted that cotton to keep coming. There were riots at the time of the Civil War. There were Irish people who were considered, they were treated like dirt. And they, were, they didn't want to be drafted to fight to free slaves. They were afraid the slaves would displace them. Italians were persecuted and discriminated against in New York. Jews, people from uh, Asian countries, a lot of it still happens. The neighborhoods change. My wife's parents both fled Germany as kids in the 1930s. And her father came in 1937 to Washington Heights, which is northern Manhattan, near the George Washington Bridge. And that at the time was very heavily German-Jewish because that's who fled there. Now it's people from the Dominican Republic. And that's the kind of food that you get there, if you, you know, Dominican food. The city's always alive and changing like America. and and so there are monuments all over. People, uh, I went to uh, a monument recently uh, along the east side for the Harlem Hellfighters. They just, there was just a congressional gold medal given to that unit. They suffered work casualties. They were black soldiers and they pushed to get into combat. And they had the most successful military career of any World War I units in the American army. And it was years and years until that was recognized, but there's a monument to them. There's monument to the textile workers, many of whom were Jewish. There's a monument to 
there's a hunger memorial. It's very moving. It's on the, in Lower Manhattan. It's it has a reconstructed Irish stone hut on the top of it, and it, it's a memorial to the. It was over a million, I believe, Irish people who starved when uh, the English were taking their grain away to sell it when the potatoes failed in the 1840s. And there are plaques from prisoners in Sing Sing prison, from churches and synagogues, I believe from the Choctaw First Nations tribe that all contributed money to the Irish to try to relieve their suffering. And they were all in New York, in the New York area. And it was very moving. Uh, to see that we, when there have been disasters here like 9/11, people come together. You know, it's not like we're all one family, but we know how to live together and get along here. Wow, well, I love hearing these uh, stories, and your passion just comes through with every story you tell, and just as you explain why you do what you do. I have a feeling my listeners are going to want to hear more about you, find out more about the Human Rights First organization. So, how could they do that? How can my listeners find out more about you personally, your your bike trip coming up, and then the Human Rights First organization? Human Rights First, they can look up at Human Rights First, all spelled out in words, humanrightsfirst.org. The New York Times recently published an article in which they listed organizations that you could approach to try to help the Afghan refugees who are now coming. And the very first organization on the list was Human Rights First. They're a worthy, worthy organization. And if you want to read about the ride for human rights and see pictures from all over the country, I've been to 39 states now. I left my bike before the pandemic in Seattle, and it's still waiting for me. I hope to go back in the spring and continue. Next stop, Provo, Utah. Well, again, Jeffrey, I wish I could bottle your energy and give that to every nonprofit leader. It's so genuine and it's so inspiring. So thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for investing so much of your own person, your energy, your time, uh, risking your life even because this cause is so important. And I think to me, as I think about nonprofits, that's what nonprofits are all about. It's the mission, right? That drives you and the people you get to serve. So Jeffrey, thanks for all you're doing and best of luck with this upcoming ride. Hey friends, I wanted you to know that this podcast can be found on both iTunes and Spotify. If you're wondering how to find it, just type in the words Nonprofit Leadership Podcast and this podcast should show up. We also encourage you when you go on iTunes, let us know what you think. Give us a review. Give us a rating. We would love to hear what you think of this podcast and your feedback will help expand this podcast to get it out to as many people as possible. You can also find other resources and interviews of past guests on my website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. Again, that website is non nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, keep making your world better.